Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come into your presence and to worship you. I pray, Father, that as we listen to your word and think about it, that you will open your word, take my very meager words and make them yours. We ask this, Lord God, that we may know you better. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It is a pleasure to be with you again this week. My name is Father Tim Howe. I work at the diocese, so I'm up on the third floor most days during the week. I recognize many of you from just being here in the building from time to time. It's a pleasure to be with you again this week. We believe Father Scott is somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. We're hoping at about 30,000 feet and flying at about 500 miles an hour back here. Um, <clears throat> so continue to pray for him and for the other folks who all traveled to Rwanda for the GAFCON conference as they begin to make their way home. This week we are still in Peter's first letter to the church. Uh, if you have one of the Bibles there, I see a few under the seats. You might want to pull it out. It's on page 1014 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, I don't know what page it may be if you brought your personal Bible, but if you get to the book of Revelation, you've gone too far, just turn back to the left just a little bit and you'll find it. Last week, we discussed the Christian's living hope and that God makes this possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and born again into this living hope. What should characterize us as we go through life and relationships? How will people know that we belong to Christ? These are the questions Peter is seeking to answer in this next section of his letter. So what we have this morning is Peter applying his doctrine that we looked at last week into our lives this week. So last week we talked about having this living hope, a hope that is assured and guaranteed and that we have every expectation of obtaining and it's made available to us by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now we're going to find out a little bit about what this hope means. It's not complicated, but it can sometimes be difficult to do. The first thing Peter tells us is that we have to think. We have to think. Use our brains. Think through the implications of what it means to be the sons and daughters of God Almighty through faith in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13, the very first sentence out of our passage, in English, it says, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we had a little bit of fun translating some Greek words into English, and we're gonna do it again this morning, right now. That phrase in English preparing your minds for action, translates a Greek phrase that we don't hear very often anymore because customs and fashions have changed quite a bit over the centuries. What Peter actually wrote in Greek is this. 
Gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, the English phrase, preparing your minds for action, is a perfectly fine way to translate that phrase because that's what Peter means. But somehow it loses a little bit of its punch. To gird up the loins was an action to get ready to go into action. You would do this if you were about to engage in strenuous physical activity or if you were about to go into battle. The soldiers would do this. And what they would do is they would take their robes, much about this long, they would gather it up, pass it between their legs, and then tie it behind themselves in the ropes or the belt that they were wearing. That was how you girded up your loins. And what it did was it freed your legs. You weren't going to trip while you were doing whatever it was you're doing. Especially important in battle when your very life could be at stake. You don't want to trip and fall. <clears throat> so to gird up your loins was what you did to get ready to do what you're about to do. Okay. Now, fashions change, as I said, we still do similar things today. This is something that saved my back many a time. This is a back brace. I bought it at Walmart. Oh gosh, 10 years ago, and I wore it for eight and a half years while I loaded your packages onto UPS trucks, okay? And this thing saved my back. It's designed to go around, it's got elastic, and it's got some metal here right in the middle that goes right in the small of your back, and you wear it around and you get it good and tight, not so tight you can't breathe, but just tight enough so nothing shifts when you pick something up heavy, okay? And I wore this eight and a half years. <clears throat> I always regretted the times I either forgot it, left it at home for some reason, or thought to myself, I don't think I need to wear it tonight. Invariably, I'd end up very sore and very stiff the next day and regret it. To put it on at the start of each shift at UPS was the modern equivalent of girding up my loins for action. I was preparing to do battle with all the cardboard. And folks, let me tell you, sometimes that cardboard was mighty heavy. So Peter is saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Now you can't physically reach in there and do anything, but you get the idea. Get ready. Think through, prepare your minds, ponder what it means to be a committed Christian. <clears throat> Think through questions like this. What things might need to change in my life? What actions do I need to do? What things do I need to refrain from? And he gives a, a short list there in 1 Peter. Another thing is, what preparations do you need to make before you interact with other people. I'm sure this has happened to some of you on occasion. People will come up and say, I've heard you're a Christian. What does that mean? What happened? And you have to think through in advance. It helps to think through in advance what you're going to say, how you're going to respond. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, 
people, several people came to me and said, Tim, you've changed. What happened? And I had to think through for a minute. How much am I going to tell them what happened in my life? I remember going, when I was in college, I went to a uh, retreat and I met a guy that I had known in high school. And I wasn't a Christian in high school and he knew it and I knew it. And he met me at this retreat. He could not, we were there for like five days. He, every time he saw me, he was just, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. So that was kind of fun to talk with him. How will you explain why you live life the way you do when other people ask you? Think things through before the heat of the battle comes upon you. Be prepared. Think through in advance when temptation comes. Because often in the midst of temptation, especially if it's a very strong temptation or something that we are very pulled towards, we don't always think clearly. We get caught up in it. And it's hard sometimes for us to think through to the other side. Okay, if I do this, what's going to happen? Because whatever it is is so attractive to us. But if we think through in advance, okay, this temptation is probably going to come. I've had trouble with this in the past. And this is what it means. If I do that, this is what's going to happen. It will help you resist if you think it through. Then he says, be sober-minded. The word literally means to refrain from the abuse of alcohol or anything else which clouds your mind, which leads to intoxication or confusion or an inability to ponder and think. I heard on the news this morning as I was getting dressed and getting ready to come down here, that yesterday was the big cannabis festival at RFK Stadium up in D.C. Those people were not being sober-minded. They were celebrating something that clouds your mind for whatever reason. In a broader application, to be sober-minded also refers to keeping your mind free from other distractions in excess. Now, it's okay to think about ordinary things. We do it all the time. We have to. But it's not okay to really obsess on them. Why? So you can think clearly, free from the fuzziness and confusion that intoxication or obsession can bring. What Peter is driving at is the need for everyone who names the name of Christ to think clearly, accurately, and thoroughly about what it means to be in a relationship with Almighty God the Father through Jesus Christ. And this is something that we do every single day as we make decisions about how we're going to live our lives. And he points out some other elements uh, a little bit farther down in the passage. But before he moves on, he says this amazing thing. Set your hope, same word as last week, fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about when Christ comes again. All right, Jason's got me on that screen, but not these yet. So God bless Jason. <clears throat> He's saying, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to come 
Well, how is it going to come? Jesus is going to bring it. And he's going to give it to you as his children. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fully on the grace. What does that mean? That means above everything else. Nothing else comes in to steal your hope away. You don't trust or hope in something else. You hope fully on the grace that Jesus is going to bring. We need to pay close attention because the word hope here and the phrase that it's in, set your hope, same word, but it's an imperative command. All right, those of you who went through grammar in elementary school, I don't know if they still teach grammar these days or not. You remember what an imperative command is? Remember, you're supposed to do something. That's what this is. It's an imperative Set your hope. And here, it's also helpful to know just a smidgen of Greek grammar because it helps us understand the sense of what Peter is driving at. The Greek grammatical construction of set your hope tells us that this is a settled action that we are to take. There's no question about it. It's something you need to do. And once you do it, you settle it in your mind, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. That's what he's saying. Make it settled in your life that you are going to look forward to that grace that Christ is going to bring. And don't let anything knock it out of your mind. So how do we do that? I'll tell you how. We think about it. We think about hope. We ponder it. What does that mean? We consider it. What is the content of our hope? Then we settle it in our hearts and minds and make it a dominant factor and a top priority in all of our thinking going on into the future. Whenever we think about other things, this hope should still be lurking in our minds, just below the surface, where we can pull it up and think about it some more. Whenever we consider a course of action, or think about what we are about to say in whatever context, or whenever we're reading an argument or an idea, we bring this hope into the conversation because we have settled it in our minds that this is the most important thing, that we will receive God's grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I don't want anything to take that away from me. Now, you and I, have known fanatical people over the years. You ever known a fanatic about something? Sometimes they are rabid sports fans and their team can do no wrong. All they talk about is the next season, who the team's going to draft, who's gonna be the quarterback or the point guard or whatever, who's gonna be the goalie. And whenever you talk to them, somehow they manage to turn the conversation towards their team or some aspect of the team and the draft will be great and we're just gonna, we're gonna wipe them all up this year. These are the people, you know them, they wear the jersey, they wear the hat, they have the coat or the jacket, they probably have the socks, they might even have the pants, and some of them will even have the shoes. 
That's a fanatic. Their, te their teams consume their lives. Sometimes, we've all run into this as well, a fanatic is a salesman pitching the latest, greatest, whatever it is, and they just can't stop talking about it. <laughs> Peter is saying that like these folks, we should be fanatic about this hope and this grace that God is going to bring to us. Now, we don't have to be obnoxious about it, but it needs to mark our lives. People need to know. We are to set our hopes, our affections, our expectations, our lives fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We should look forward to it eagerly, anticipating it with all of our hearts and minds. Like the sports fanatic, we should be thinking about this hope, talking about this hope, praying about this hope, learning everything we can about it. We should be hungry to know more about the hope and the grace. Why? Why? Because when Jesus comes with this hope with him, it will be eternal. And when he comes, anything else you might be hoping for will come to an end. Plain as that. Long after everything else you possess is disintegrated and fallen into dust, this hope will still be yours. So Peter, throughout this letter, is urging Christians to be forward-looking, looking ahead, anticipating what God is still going to do, to keep it in mind that one day Christ will come again. And he knows for a fact that this will happen because Jesus himself said it, and because Jesus sealed for all time his trustworthiness by getting up from the grave. Everything he promised that hasn't happened yet will happen. And he wants Christians to know and to be set in their minds that when he does return, we will receive grace from him. Well, what is this grace? Well, here's a few elements of it for you. It is God's grace. It is God who gives grace. It's God's mercy. It's God's love given through Jesus Christ to those who belong to him. Through his grace, God forgives our sins. Through his grace, God frees us from shame and condemnation. Through his grace, God promises and then ushers us into his heaven for all eternity. Have you ever been at the bedside of someone who's died? And have you ever sensed what's happening? This has happened to me several times. I've known that the angels were there and that this person, their body is there, but they aren't. And they're going with the angels and they're passing through, I don't know whether it's a tunnel or a light at the end or whatever it is, but they're passing into that other realm and you know they aren't dead. Body's dead, but they aren't because they believed and set their hope on the grace that Christ would bring to them. And Christ honors that. Through his grace, God makes us his children and calls us his own. And what that means is through his grace, 
we will be saved and we will experience all aspects of his redemption. As we saw last week, he will give us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. I took my chalice home. I did not clean it up after last week. I left it the way it is so I can use it again as a sermon illustration. But once you have his inheritance, you can't lose it. It will be yours. I remember as a young Christian, many of you probably remember this, reading about the famous story of Jim Elliot and his friends. Nate Saint was another one of them who were martyred while trying to reach a tribe back in the Amazon rainforest with the gospel of Christ. Many of you remember that story and the stories of the other men who died with him. But do you remember his famous quote? Every once in a while it'll pop up. This is what he said. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what was he talking about? He was talking about life here on earth versus life in heaven. Mortal life here versus eternal life with God. And he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice to gain that eternal life because he knew that he would lose this life because he would die someday. That is exactly what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter. The world calls us foolish and mocks us and ridicules us for having this faith. I know this. I was on a web forum just yesterday and there were a whole bunch of people calling us foolish and mocking us and ridiculing us for having this faith. But my brothers and sisters, the Lord will one day have the final say. It will be best to be on his side on that day. And with this thought in mind, Peter exhorts the church, us, to be obedient, to give up the ways of life we used to live in that tore us away from Christ and God, that came between us and Jesus, to give up rebelling against God and to walk in his ways, to turn away from anything and everything that clouds your vision, that makes it hard to see what God is doing and what God wants in your life or that pushes us away from Christ. Then in verse 17 of our passage, Peter gives a sobering reminder. If you call on him, if you call on God as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile here. Did you catch that? If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Ooh, ow. There are things in my life that I don't want to have to stand in front of Almighty God and answer for. There have been disappointments. There's been things I've done that I was ashamed of or guilty over or hurtful to other people that I don't want to have to answer for. And yet, I will. Peter, along with most of the rest of the Bible, is reminding the world, not just the church, that God the Father 
will judge each and every person for how we lived life. There will be a day and time when each one of us will stand before God and answer his questions about how we live life. Oh, oh my gosh. Now, let me not leave you in a moment of anguish and despair. If you belong to Christ, I submit to you, you will find something amazing happening in that conversation. You will find the truth of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, where God says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He will look in the book. He'll look you up. Revelation tells us there's these books and they've got everything in them. And he will find your name and there will be all the details of your life. And he will read your entry. And I submit to you that for most of us, if we trust in Christ, well, for all of us, if we trust in Christ, there will be a post-it note right in the middle of the page. And the post-it note will say, paid in full, thanks, Dad, Jesus. And underneath it, it'll be blank. Because God will remember your sins no more. Why? How can he do that? Because Jesus paid for them. He's already paid for them. He has bought our salvation. But something else will happen. As you're standing there in front of God the Father, you'll discover someone is standing right next to you. First John, first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 1, says this. And we say it uh, almost every Sunday when we do the comfortable words after confession. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's a defense attorney. That's what an advocate is. Someone who pleads your case in court. Jesus will stand with you and defend you to his Father. Okay? You won't go through it alone. He will be right there. And he will be saying to the father, dad, you don't need to remember. I've already paid for this. This one's mine. He or she is free to come and go. But, but, here's the warning. If you don't belong to Christ, you will find that your every misdeed, every sin, every evil intention or thought, all of it will still be in the book. It'll all be there, recorded and ready to be judged by a holy God. There will be nobody standing there with you and nothing between you and him. And he will judge righteously. Now, in this day and age, people don't like to hear this. We think that God will approve whatever we approve and that we don't need to worry. After all, God is love and love is love. And so therefore, whatever I do in the name of love, God will approve. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. 
we will be judged for how we lived our lives, for the choices we make, for the way we react to things that happen in our lives, by whether or not we respond in faith to Christ. This is why Peter writes to the church, writes to us, to set our hope fully, not on my goodness, not on my ability to atone for my own sins, but on the grace that will be revealed through Jesus Christ when he returns. It will be his grace and only his grace, and we will know it for a fact when we stand there that it's only by his grace that any of us will get into God's heaven. But his grace is sufficient. It's more than enough to overcome any weakness or failing or sin we may ever have committed in our lives. And again, we can know for a fact that his grace will come because Jesus rose from the grave. He paid the full penalty. St. Paul, at the end of his letter to the Romans in chapter 4, well, at the end of that chapter, he says that Christ died for our sins but rose again for our justification. What that means is that by getting up, Jesus is showing that the whole penalty for all sin, for all time, has been satisfied and paid. There's nothing more he needs to do. And there's nothing more we need to do except ask him for it. So what's the point of all of this? We read in verse 22 of our passage, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What's going on there? As we think about, as we apply, as we process what this grace fully is, we will begin to change because we will begin to reflect the presence, the character, of God in ourselves. And God's heart is a heart of love, his love. Now, I want you to just turn your head, keep your eyes open, turn your head, just look. There's a lot of people in here. I don't know how many, but there's a lot of people in here. Look at somebody else. All right, that's enough. <laughs> if that person belongs to Christ, that person is an eternal being. Doesn't matter what their age is today, they will live for all eternity. If you belong to Christ, you too will live for all eternity. Because we have been born again, Peter writes, with an imperishable seed, meaning it can't be taken away from you through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We are eternal kin to Jesus and with one another. So let's bring this home. You may have looked at someone and you thought, ooh, not him, ooh, not her. But guess what? Yeah, him or her, okay? We are eternal kin. So Peter's encouragement 
is to be looking forward toward the coming of Christ and realizing that so are a whole lot of other people. And that we are to love one another because God is love. And so part of the task for us is to think through what this all means, then to be obedient. And then uh, Peter writes, put away the passions of your ignorance. Don't do those things that you used to do that you knew were wrong even while you did them. Just put them away. Just don't go there anymore. So that your mind is clear, your heart is clear, your soul is clear, and you can love other people. That's what God wants from us. His encouragement is to think through what it means to have Christ in your life. To have Christ bring all these things to you. And what does he want you to do with that? Now, <clears throat> he reminds us right at the end of the passage something that the Lord really impressed on me to share at the first service. The very last couple verses tell us that mortal life is exactly that, mortal. And it says, all flesh is like the grass. And like, I like how one translation puts it, like the flower that falls off the stem of the plant because it's died, okay? And as I've gotten older, <laughs> I've begun to realize the truth of that. As I realize most of my life is already behind me, okay? It is just like grass. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Okay. But then he says, the only thing that's eternal is God and his word. And the word, Peter says, is what we have preached to you. Now think about this for just one minute. I know that in this age of social media, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, all that stuff, some of us get thoroughly caught up in that. And for some of us, that's where we find our meaning, our hope, our joy, our community. Some people obsess over it. They're fanatics, okay? And sometimes people get so caught up into it that the things that they read there, they believe begin to define them. Peer pressure, social pressure, political correctness, whatever it is. But Peter is saying, wait a minute, all of those things will come to an end. Ultimately, whatever peer pressure you may be feeling for whatever it is, it's going to come to an end. Why? Because the people who are bringing it are going to die. That's what he's saying. And the thing that is eternal is God and his word and what he says to us. That's why we set our hopes fully on the grace that is to be revealed to us. So love one another with the love God himself gives to us. Set your hope fully on the grace, because it is grace and it will be wonderful, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And live your life in the light of that truth all the time. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you that through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, you extend grace to us and to all whom you call. Help us, Lord, to think through all the implications of what that means as we strive to follow you. You know that we need your help all the time to live this life you have called us to. Help us. Pour out your Spirit upon us and empower us afresh to do what you are calling us to do. Awaken this hope in our hearts and in our minds, and may your presence in our lives truly change us and transform us to be like Jesus. We ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.